in the fog of war. What is the current situation for science in Ukraine? Everything is frozen. I mean, it's, it's impossible to work with, with these international partners. Travels are impossible. Experimental labs are mostly closed because it's impossible to buy consumables. It's impossible to work with animals. So it's pretty much closed. Does the war in Ukraine create the conditions for remarkable opportunities to rebuild science in the country? Okay, one, one of the examples. I know that in Chernobyl, I believe it was quite new. This very expensive lab is destroyed. And definitely it's a good idea to construct it already with more modern equipment. And speaking of Chernobyl... The Russian propaganda is extremely powerful. They use what is called information bias, availability bias. Russian state media wants you to believe that Ukrainian science is inherently dangerous and can't be trusted. How can science combat disinformation? This is the, even more important than winning the war because a lot of people receive messages which do not coincide with reality. And what about building scientific research capacity in Ukraine, educating young scientists and engineers, for instance? What can be done now to secure their future? And the younger generation, how science will look like in, in a year or in two years? Basically, the education is now continuing, but that's not the same quality of education as it was before. Even if the war in Ukraine ended today, it wouldn't be over, given the ruin and destruction of its cities and towns. Think of all the infrastructure that's gone, the dislocation of millions of the country's citizens. It will take years to rebuild, if not decades. And what about applied research and science in Ukraine? What's been lost? What's gone missing? I am Alexey Kolejuk, uh, and I am a professor of physics at uh, National University of Kyiv. For experimentalists in Kharkiv, for example, which is maybe our second largest scientific center in Ukraine, a lot of infrastructure is simply lost. So it's either destroyed or brought to a state where it won't be uh, useful for, for a long time. So you can say lost. Then, of course, a lot of people had to flee. It's unclear when they will be able to continue their experiments. If this infrastructure which uh, they were relying upon is lost, then their future is unclear. The war has not changed much about the problems with Ukrainian science. This is Vladimir Vakitov. You can call me Vlad. He's a professor of behavioral economics and vice president of the Kiev School of Economics. When the war started, almost immediately, maybe, maybe after a couple of weeks, we all got lots of invitations to go to some universities in Europe and America and Canada, sometimes even in, in Japan. And the problem is that in Ukraine, the science is not gender balanced. Presumably, uh, the science is done by males. I think it's about 60% of the scientists are males. And absolute majority of the scientists are in the age of between 18 and 60 males of this age are not allowed to leave Ukraine according to the martial law. So as a result, our school started to prepare some kind of database of those offers. And we started talking about possible remote positions for our scientists whenever it's possible. Well, first of all, if we, we are speaking about infrastructure, about buildings, institutions, uh, equipment, that I don't think that too much was lost. 
Working remotely as a chief scientific officer for an AI startup, Simon Yeslavesky is also a biophysicist at Ukraine's National Academy of Sciences. The most damaged cities like Mariupol or cities in Donbass are not so much important in science, so there are no scientific institutions there. So in this respect, it's not so much damaged. But what is damaged, of course, collaborations, everything is frozen. I mean, it's it's impossible to work with, with international partners. Travels are impossible. Experimental labs are mostly closed because it's impossible to buy consumables. It's impossible to work with animals. So it's pretty much closed. So people who are doing theory, and maybe people who are doing social sciences or humanities are less vulnerable in this respect, but the life sciences are mostly stopped. This this is how I see the situation. But of course, it depends on the region, because in the west of Ukraine, it's pretty much okay. The western part of Ukraine actually working normally. We can meet over Zoom as we're meeting with you right now. We can do a lot of work. We can share files. The internet works. Pretty much most territory of Ukraine is relatively safe. And if you find the place with the internet, you can practice your science anywhere. And this is what we need the most. We need some to join some projects, ongoing projects. We need mm-hmm. to join some, uh, to get some positions which are available remotely so that we could continue doing the science. Okay, so that's clear. And no doubt remote work can work for scientific disciplines like economics, for instance. As for the applied sciences, research that requires fully equipped labs, experiments with animals and so forth, that's going to be hard. Uh, especially, again, in experimental sciences. So they, they, they can hardly, uh, well, there will be something and it will be okay, but that's not the same. Uh, then a lot of people will probably just change their occupation. They won't uh, stay in science because of several uh, factors. Uh, I mean, it, we can say it openly. In the time of war, uh, science uh, will experience budget cuts. It's already experiencing budget cuts, and that will be another factor. It was not funded so greatly before the war. And now it will be more tight. So that will be another factor, like nudging people to move from science to IT, for example, or to other occupations. So the brain drain was always a problem. And unfortunately, I expect that it will be even more severe. Sergei Sharapov is a physicist with the Bogolubov Institute for Theoretical Physics in Ukraine. So uh, the only option I see is that uh, Ukrainian authorities will introduce some programs that plan to introduce for returning scientists. But uh, this should be taken much more seriously. But unfortunately, right now, I, from Ukrainian authorities, I hear something uh, opposite. They claim that they should uh, fund only projects that are directly related to weapon and so on. And the life after the war is going to be much harsher. It wasn't very nice for the scientists before the war. It would be much worse because it looks like the state doesn't care much about the science, which is not related to military expenses immediately. That means if I'm an economist who is trying to think about the urban development after the war, I might be demanded. If I'm thinking about possible economic causes of COVID on, uh, on the population of Ukraine, and I probably will not be demanded much. And that means a lot of scientists will probably choose to remain abroad, and this looks like a brain drain. 
values. See, when we speak about brain drain due to these situations that many scientists are now abroad and they don't want to come back, we should understand that modern science is extremely globalized. So it's impossible to be restrictive here uh, to force people to return by some artificial limitations, for example. So Ukraine should become attractive for scientists. Otherwise, they would never return and the brain drain will continue anyway. So what should we do? We should, first of all, propose competitive salaries. We should make uh, an attractive scientific development plan of the country. We should have kind of roadmap for the development of Ukrainian science. And we should clear the community from imitators, plagiarism, pseudoscience, and all this kind of stuff. And this will make conditions for a term. Of course, some of them are abroad for 20 years. They have permanent positions. They are not interested in coming back. But uh, many, many people will return. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, one of its former nations, Estonia, was stuck with Russian infrastructure that wasn't very good to begin with. The phone system, for one. It was expensive and unreliable. Rather than prop it up, Estonia jumped technologies by creating a digital culture for young engineers and scientists to work with. The result was Skype. With so much devastation in Ukraine, is it useful to talk about a creative destruction and rebuild like Estonia did when things fell apart? Yeah, this this would be so. You, that that's a useful line of thinking. Yeah, like to to look at that as an opportunity. Yeah, uh, this is possible, but of course it will need a lot of money first. Yeah, and it will need the right political attitude because to uh, so if you compare it to Estonia, yeah, they have started their reforms in science very early. In contrast to Ukraine, 20 years we were doing nothing. Yeah? After after we became independent, we basically retained the old Soviet structure of our science and research and development was, was not changed a bit yeah, compared to Soviet times. Estonia did complete uh, change in whatever, five years. Uh, there was a lot of suffering. I am not saying that was smooth, but they have done that quick and now they are profiting from that because now they are 21st century certainly and they are embracing digital technology and they are leaders in digital and they have top level centers of excellence their science is small yeah so that's what people always say Estonia was small so that's why it was easy Ukraine is much larger so it's more difficult but that was also an excuse for delaying reforms so science is not a priority for Ukrainian officials and this is a problem and this should be changed and for example, also the financing of science is extremely small in Ukraine. If you compare with most of the European countries, which spend like 2% of their budget on science, in Ukraine, it's about 0.1%, which is almost nothing. So this is what has to be changed, not the bureaucracy itself. Of course, administration as bureaucracy should also be modernized, but this is a secondary goal. Now we have the chance, so the war is bringing us a chance yeah, to, to, to start from scratch, basically. Yeah? And when we will be rebuilding our infrastructure and our science system, we, we should not rebuild it in the way it was before the war. We should use this opportunity, otherwise we are complete idiots. Yeah, definitely. 
this is an opportunity and actually every conflict and every crisis is an opportunity and the biggest problem in ukrainian science started not with the start of the war but much earlier so i would say that it would not be so hard to make a new infrastructure to rebuild or build something new it would be really hard to keep the interest of researchers to work in ukraine after the war because the biggest problem is actually lack of academic integrity and miserable financing of science, which was there for many years. Here are several issues. Right now, the narrative uh, which I hear from uh, the president and from the president uh, from the president's aides is that we are going to build the economy which is going to look like the economy of Israel. So we are going to be war prepared, we are going to be war trained, we are going to spend a lot of part of GDP on the defense and preparing for all the future wars, and everybody will be conscripted, and even including females. So it's going to be pretty much as Israel army or maybe like Swiss army, and we're going to be prepared. If this happens, uh, the, it looks like science, especially the fundamental science, not applied science, will be given the lowest priority. And once I'm, once I'm talking about the fundamental sciences, I am talking about such remote things as probably biology or maybe something like philology, anthropology, some social sciences, uh, even some, uh, maybe some theoretical physics and theoretical mathematics. So those things which are not directly related to war will probably given the lowest priority. And I foresee right now that the situation with science is will be pretty bad, much worse than it was before the war. But at least now I see a lot of different propositions about how to rebuild cities and what kind of industries should be built where and how and how to finance all that and how to get the legal help to get those reparations from Russia and so forth. But I never see any word about science in all those documents, and this deeply troubles me. I'll take a risk with this question. Is it too early, or even possible, to imagine collaborations with Russian science after things calm down? It's a difficult question because, as you may imagine, the current sentiment against Russians is very strong. Alexei Kalajuk. But if someone now in Russia says, oh, okay, so it looks like Mr. Putin is going to put an iron curtain again, so I want to escape before it's going down. And well, why, why wouldn't I go to Ukraine? That's a nice place. They, they can understand me. They can understand Russia. They can stay there. I don't think this will be uh, accepted as a valid reason or uh, those people won't be welcome, I'm afraid. Yeah, They, they can be nice people, uh, but they still will be seen as, you know, as representatives of the same brainwashed population, bringing with themselves the same attitudes, maybe in a milder form, not in such extreme form that, you know, all Ukrainians have to be killed, but still they will be seen as representatives of the same fascist system. Yeah. At the time of the making of this podcast, the war in Ukraine escalated, and the outcome of the Russian invasion was nowhere certain, except perhaps that science and engineering will be very much in Ukraine's future. So what can Canadian science do to help? Once again, Vladimir Vikitov. What I think is very important is that if there are any projects remotely, please try to open them for Ukrainian scientists 
they can help you out. And this is very important that those projects are remote and those projects are administered with minimum uh, bureaucracy. So it is relatively easy to open some kind of account here in Ukraine to become what is called the private entrepreneur and to receive money from abroad. And this is very similar to work with the foreign contractor. So if it's possible to establish some kind of cooperation where Canadian universities and Canadian industrial firms open those lines of financing for this remote uh, relationship with Ukrainian scientists, I think this would be the tremendous help. Also, short-term things could include access to digital infrastructure, at least. Yeah, You cannot give people physical access, I don't know, to a reactor in Grenoble, but you can give people access to some database uh, and all things which can be done virtually. But if we speak in terms of uh, long-term perspective, then I think it would be very uh, important to... Now to introduce some forms of cooperation which would be sustainable and will be long-term like joint labs, joint institutes. But I think it will be much more useful in the long term because, as you said, uh, Ukrainian science is maybe not like the best in the world, but uh, we still have a lot of potential and, and of being useful and uh, this will attract talented people. And I think the results of joint centers of excellence with different countries with Canada, with other countries, and that would be very useful because this will survive. Yeah, This will not be something short-term, which is like a charity. This will be a real cooperation, which is mutually interesting and so on. And that will be a way for Ukraine to, to change the science yeah, to the 21st century. Dr. Yeselovsky, I'd like to leave the last word to you. Is there anything you'd like to add uh, to this conversation that Canadians in particular should hear? Well, UK, I want to emphasize again that the global scientific community and Canadian scientific community in particular should pay attention to the fundamental problem or problems of science in Ukraine. And these problems are not only damaged buildings due to the war and not even the brain drain. Uh, this should be a trigger to change the policy and the attitude of science in Ukraine completely. And this is what international community should do. So I would expect the community to push Ukrainian government, Ukrainian officials to change the attitude towards science in general. This would be the greatest help which the international community can provide right now. Research in Ukraine. Where has it gone? You heard from four Ukrainian scientists, Simon Yeslavesky, Alexei Kalorchuk, Vladimir Vakitov, and Sergei Sharapov. This podcast series was made possible by Genome Canada. Mike Spear is the producer. Until the next time, I'm Don Hill.